we are in the middle of chapter 31. And chapter 31 is a transition chapter. Remember that chapter 29 and chapter 30 was about healing this spiritual illness of Timtum Halev, which is a numb heart. And for that, we needed to take a very bitter pill. We needed to totally crush and humble the Sitra Akhara, which within us is our animal soul, our Yetzahara, so that we can feel again. Our heart was numb. There was this arrogance that was hiding the divine soul from shining within the heart, from creating emotions within the heart. And so this Sitra Akhara, this animal soul, had to be subdued, had to be crushed and humbled in order so that the divine soul can shine again. And now the altar in the beginning of this chapter said, one second, I am telling you to use sadness in order to humble your animal soul, in order to humble your dark side. But why is that okay? Sadness is of the klipa. You might look at sadness and say, oh, sadness is a humble feeling. Sadness is a holy feeling. Oh, no, that's not true. Sadness is an ego-based feeling. Sadness is a feeling of self-absorption. Anything that's ego-based is klipa. So yes, the person is sad because they're distant from Hashem. So seemingly or actually for a really good reason. And yet, the sadness itself is not holy. Hashem's place, like we read in the holy writings in Divrei Hayamim, it says, Strength and gladness are in His place. Hashem's place is gladness. Hashem's place is joy. Where there's sadness, there's klipa. So then why is that okay? And the Altar Rebbe said, yes, it's true it's from the klipa, but we're going to employ this method as explained in the Talmud, mine ube iba lishte be narga. From the forest itself comes the axe to chop the trees. So we're using this, we're using this method of taking the dark side to subdue the dark side. We're using sadness to speak to the ego in its own language, to humble the ego so that we can subdue it and allow our divine soul to shine. And the truth of the matter is that this sadness that comes from the klipa only lasts for a moment. That's the initial feeling, the initial feeling after a person engages in these deep meditations about his distance from Hashem. The first feeling is indeed a feeling of sadness, and that's in order to meet the Sitra Akhra where it is, to talk to it in its own language, to subdue it. But that sadness is brief. After that, it leads to actually a holy feeling. And that's the feeling of mirirus, bitterness. The heart has two expressions of energy. One of them comes from chesed. Chesed is kindness. And the energy that comes from kindness is joy. And then the other one, the other energy, the other feeling of life is that which comes from givura. Givura gives expression not to joy, but another kind of motivating energy, and that is mirirus, bitterness. So both of these are high-level energy. One is joy, and one is bitterness. They both get a person moving. But of course, they're very different. Joy is a place where a person is in a happy mood. They are in upbeat spirits. And mirirus is that a person is in a place of frustration. Get me out of here. I'm motivated. I want to change. Get me out of here. It's a feeling of 
motivation, but with strictness. Now, generally speaking, that is not the way, that's not the mode where we're supposed to be. Generally speaking, we are supposed to be in the mode of chasadim, the mode of upbeat, joyful energy. Because mirirus, like we said last class, is dangerous. It's a powerful drug. Even though it comes from the side of holiness, we quoted last week from the great Rabbi Aaron of Carlin, that at the end of the day, it still has some relationship to sadness. It's a dangerous place to be. It's in order to heal this sickness. Ultimately, for the most part, we're supposed to be in a state of joy. So we looked at how this, the mechanism works over here. And we had a very interesting concept, and that was, Ain hadinim nimtaken el bisharshan. That means that judgments are sweetened in their source. What we were doing was, we were stirring up the bitterness that comes from the holy severity within our divine soul. And when we arouse that within ourselves down here, we called forth a supernal response. We had the holy givurot up above being stirred, being aroused. What does that do? It exposes the source of the animal soul and the yetzer hara down here. The yetzer hara, the animal soul down here, they're very bad. They're concealment. They were trying to hide the divine from us. But everything in this universe ultimately comes from holiness. Where do they come from? They come from the Gevura, the holy Gevura above. What is Gevura? Gevura is about restriction. Gevura is about concealment. Gevura is about limitation. But the holy Gevura, why does it conceal? Why does it restrict? Why does it hide? In order for, to allow man to bring greater divine manifestation in the world. Think about the hurdle on the racetrack. It looks like it's there to impede you. It's not actually there to impede you. It's there to propel you. Givura conceals, but it's ordered to bring out your greatest powers. That's how it is above. Down below, as it has devolved, it really became degenerate. And now really just wants to conceal. So what we do is, we expose the essence of the animal soul. The truest life force of anything is its essence. For example, when you look at a person, you don't think, oh, they're a body. You know that their truest essence is their life force, which is their soul. The truest essence of the animal soul, of the Yetzir Hara, is its life force. And its life force, if we trace it high, 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 way before it made all these devolutions, it was good. It was in order to allow the person to bring greater divine manifestation into this world by resisting. And so when we expose the source of the Yetzir Hara and the animal soul, then we sweeten it. We remind it who it is. At your essence, right now, you're really bad. Right now, you're trying to hide Hashem from me. But stop. At your essence, you're good. Ultimately, you're here so that I can bring more divine light into this world. And when we do this, we sweeten it at its core. Again, like we said last week, we can never transform our animal soul completely unless we are a tzaddik. I bet you there has to be at least one tzaddik here today. <laughs> You're never going to know until you try. But for the rest of us, it's going to be a lifelong struggle. A lifelong struggle. We will not be able to totally transform our animal soul. But in increments, in small measure, we will refine and sweeten our animal soul. And now we're going to continue. And we are, if you printed out the booklet, 
We are on the beginning of page four. Okay. V'lachain amru razal. L'aylam yargiz adam yeter hataiv. For this reason, our sages said, one should always incite the good inclination to anger against the evil inclination. Remember earlier in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe quoted from the sages who were commenting on this Pasuk from Tehillim. In Tehillim, David HaMelech says, Rigzu ve'al techetau, rage and don't sin. And our sages said, a person should always incite his good inclination against his evil inclination. Now we understand why they said that. Incite the good inclination means arouse its mirirus, arouse its severity, the holy severity within it against the evil inclination. And this way we can sweeten it. Since anger stems from the attribute of severity, it is capable of sweetening the evil inclination. So if you look at their words very carefully, it becomes so such a pleasure. They didn't say forever a person should get angry at his yetzer hara. That's not what they said. They said a person should always incite their good inclination against their evil inclination. Meaning a person should always arouse the severity within their good inclination, which is sourced in their divine soul. Arouse the holy severity within your divine soul so that you can temper your animal soul, your yetzer hara. What does it mean when the sages said, la'ilam, always? Are you always supposed to be in this state of bitterness, of holy bitterness? No. We said that earlier. Le'itim, at times, only at times. So what did our sages mean when they said la'ilam? So the altar says it's a qualifying term. V'hainu b'chol eish lakach. The word always, one should always incite, is however to be understood in a qualified sense. Joy, not severity, is usually the proper setting for divine service. Thus, when our sages state that one should always incite the good inclination, this means whenever he finds it necessary for himself. As for example, when one sees that the arrogance of his animal soul does not permit the light of his divine soul to penetrate his heart, causing timtum halev. So always, does it mean always at every moment be in bitterness? No. Whenever you're struck with this need, when you're in a situation where the animal soul is dominating the divine soul, at this time, this is the method. Incite the good inclination against the evil inclination. So whenever. But the Altarab is going to give us a key. True. Whenever you're in this bind, you need a method. And the method is your heart is numb. Your divine soul is stuck within the shell, the crust of the animal soul. It's not letting it shine. You have to humble it. You have to crush it. You have to get to this place of mirirus so that your divine soul can shine again. This is the method. Whenever you need it, do it. But the altar was going to give us a key. He says, there's a great time to do this, an opportune moment. Ach sha'asa kaisher shehi sha'aham yuchades However, the appropriate time for this anger of the divine soul at the animal soul, meaning the time which is opportune and fitting for most people, is when one is, in any case, depressed over mundane matters, or just so, 
without any discernible cause. So what does this mean? Okay, normally you should do it whenever you need to. Your divine soul is stuck under the dominion of the animal soul. But there's an opportune time to get into this mode. And that is when you're anyway mad, when you're anyway sad, when you're anyway down or in a difficult mood because of mundane problems. That's one. Two is when you're sad for no reason at all. Okay, this is very loaded. Let's talk about this. Why would it be a good time to get into holy bitterness when your animal soul is in a bad mood, when your animal soul is sad or depressed or frustrated? And that is because the divine soul cannot act on the body alone. The divine soul is utterly spiritual. The body is physical and corporeal. It cannot have this direct connection. There needs to be an intermediary. That intermediary is the animal soul. The animal soul is both physical and spiritual. It is the glove. Because a person cannot express their divine soul without the medium of the animal soul, there has to be a similar mood going on. The divine soul cannot express itself alone. The divine soul has to express itself through the medium of the animal soul. If the animal soul is in a good mood, it's a difficult time for the divine soul to get into a bitter mood. It can't express itself that way because its glove, its container is in a very different motion. This is a very interesting concept. Like, for example, when we're talking about having joy on Yantif. In the olden days, in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, it should be the present days immediately. The Chachamim tell us that the joy came from the sacrificial meat. But nowadays, when the temple, temple is not yet standing, they said, Ein simcha ela bayayin. Joy is only with wine. Joy with wine. What in the world? We're talking about Yantif. What do we say about the holidays during prayer? We say, The entire Jewish people will take joy in you. Taking joy in Hashem with, taking joy in Hashem himself. What does wine have to do with it? Where does wine come in? The Baal Shem Tev gives an amazing parable. He said that there was a prince that went to go live amongst a bunch of peasants. And one day he gets a letter from his father, the king, asking how he's doing. He was elated. He was ecstatic. His father is asking about him. He wanted to rejoice with everybody. But what do they know about the king? What do they know about royalty? He was afraid that if he tells them about his joy, they would look down on him. They might even harm him. But he wants to dance with somebody. So what does he do? He gets to the pub. He says, okay, I'm buying drinks for everybody here. And all the peasants start dancing. And he starts dancing. Okay. They're dancing because they're high. They're drinking vodka. He's dancing because of his joy in the, his father, the king. And the Baal Shem Tov writes, this is the spirit and the matter of the Am Segula, the unique nation. Yes, Yantif, we want to be joyful in Hashem himself. But our animal, what are we going to do with our animal? It doesn't even understand. Okay, give it wine. Because it needs to express the joy of the divine soul. And the divine soul cannot express itself without the medium of the animal soul. 
So the animal soul is already down. The animal soul is fretful. It's in a bad mood. Something didn't go its way because of some mundane problems. Good. Now is a time to harness that feeling and use it to think about how distant I am from Hashem. To bring about this holy bitterness. It's a perfect time to harness that mood and to transform it as we're going to see. So that was the one part of the sentence, and that is when a person is upset. But what does it mean that they're sad for no reason at all? I bet you nobody at class ever experienced that problem. Sad for no reason? If you don't have any reason, why are you going to be sad? I don't know. A lot of people say they're sad for no reason. So the great Hasidic mentor, actually the first mashpia, that is the Hasidic uh, yeah, mentor. He was, he was chosen by the Rebbe Rashab to be the Hasidic guide for his students in his yeshiva. His name was Rav Shmuel Grainim Esterman. And he gave a very deep insight into this idea. He said, why would a person be sad for no reason? And he reminds us of the story of the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel was standing by the Tigris River and he suddenly gets a vision. He gets a vision and he says, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, but the men who were with me did not see the vision. And even though they didn't see the vision, they ran and went into hiding. And the Talmud asks, if they didn't see what he saw, why were they trembling? Why were they going into hiding? And the Talmud answers, Although they did not see, their source, their soul saw. So we have a person who is experiencing an emotion and they don't know why. They don't know why, but their soul knows why because their soul is seeing something. So Rav Shmuel Grainim says like this, if a person is suddenly sad, it is a sign for him that something is happening above. The Talmud tells us in Rosh Hashanah, this is tractate Rosh Hashanah, but it tells us that besides from being judged on Rosh Hashanah, Adam nidain b'chol yayim v'yayim. Man is judged every single day. It's possible that a person suddenly feels sad because he feels like he's being judged. If you feel like you're being judged, if you're suddenly sad, this is a perfect time to judge yourself. Do you know why? Because it says in the Midrash, Im hadin lemata, ain hadin If judgment is being done below, judgment is not being done above. So a person suddenly feels sad. And by the way, this idea that Rabbi Shmuel Grainim teaches, it's based on the teaching of the Arizal. The Arizal says that if somebody on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, the Arizal was the great mysticist who lived in Sfas in the 16th century. He literally opened up a world to us, giving us Kabbalistic secrets that people could not have access to until his time. He said that if a person suddenly finds himself crying profusely on Rosh Hashanah on Yom Kippur, he should realize that this abundant tears is because his soul sees that he's being judged and that's a great time to do teshuva. So here, a person is suddenly feeling sad for no reason. Okay, first he might have a reason. His reason is, let's make it the worst reason that it should ever be. 
She didn't get the handbag she wanted. She didn't get that handbag, and now she's sad. Or she's sad for no reason at all. She's sad because she doesn't know why. You're sad because you don't know why? Well, guess what? Your soul sees something. Your soul sees that you're being judged right now. Okay? A perfect time to transform this. When you judge yourself below, you're not being judged above. Judge yourself. Say, look how distant I am from Hashem. Turn this into holy bitterness, which will become transformed to joy. And this is actually another thing that the Zohar teaches us about saying V-joy. When we say V-joy, we do confessional prayers, let's say by bedtime Shema, or during our morning prayers, we say Ashamnu, Bagadnu, we say how we are guilty and we have been rebellious. When we judge ourselves below, we save ourselves from judgment above. So this is a very key idea. We're taking this sadness, we're taking this judgment, and we're using it as a tool to turn things for the good. Not just spiritually, but actually also physically, as we're going to see. This is an opportune time for redirecting the depression towards spiritual matters. To be among the masters of accounts mentioned above, meaning to engage in soul-searching and spiritual stock-taking. And to fulfill the previously mentioned teaching of our sages that one should always incite his good inclination against his evil inclination, since both of these paths harness the attribute of severity. So person is going to be using this tool of Mariras. A great time to do it is when they're anyway sad from mundane problems. They're going to use the mood of their animal soul to house a holy mood, the holy mood of their divine soul. They're going to turn it into not sadness anymore, Bitterness, which we said before, sadness and bitterness are very different. Sadness is a lifeless, energyless feeling. Sadness means I'm done. I can't do anything. I'm hopeless. Bitterness is I'm frustrated. I want to get out of here. I have a lot of energy. I'm going to change. So he's making this a transformational moment. He will thus also be rid of the depression brought about by mundane matters meaning redirecting his depression into soul searching and into anger at his evil inclination will dispel the mundane depression so when he takes the mundane depression and uses it for holy purposes to meditate on his distance from hashem he doesn't have the mundane depression anymore and that's for two reasons let's first take it at a basic reason the basic reason is like this i'll tell you the story of when i was in labor once so they couldn't find my vein and she busted my vein in my hand. And all of a sudden I had this huge mound and it was hurting. Okay. Then comes a huge contraction. Do you think I felt my hand anymore? No, my hand was not hurting anymore. Okay. So when a person is sad because of the handbag she didn't get and suddenly she thinks this is bad. Look how distant I am from Hashem. What does a handbag matter anymore? This is nothing. This is trivial. This is nonsense. The distance from Hashem is what hurts the most. This means nothing. But actually, there's something deeper that's going on too. And this is quoted in the name of the Bahatani himself. That if a person sweetens his animal soul by arousing the bitterness the Holy Givu wrote in his divine soul, 
again, when a person arouses their bitterness and their divine soul, they cause a supernal response. As we learned from the Zohar, bis arusa de la sata es arusa de la ela. An arousal from below causes a corresponding arousal from above. When they arouse the holy gavurot above and they sweeten their animal soul, at that point, they are exempt from mundane problems. They actually cure them, their mundane problems. And this is reminiscent of what it says in Perkei Aves. It says, Rabbi Nechonia Benakana Aimer, Kol HaMakabo Alav Altaira Ma'avirin Mimenu Omalchos Va'ol Derech Eretz. Rabbi Nechonia Benakana says, A person who accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah, he is exempted from the yoke of government problems and the yoke of worldly cares. You take upon yourself the yoke of heaven, your other problems are taken care of. You know, a person wants to get themselves busy with other things, then they may have other problems. So here too, a person takes away from their mundane problems, whatever, I'm not thinking about this now, I'm redirecting this sad energy to think about my distance from Hashem, they solve their mundane problems. They get divine assistance to heal them of the things that were causing them distress. So not only are they just not feeling it because they have a larger problem, the problem itself is remedied. Okay, now we get to transition finally into the joy. He will then arrive at true joy. So here we said, remember in the beginning, we were saying that quoting from Mishlei, Shlomo HaMelech says, in every sadness, there would be a prophet. Here's the prophet. Specifically because of the sadness, you're going to reach a really great joy. A joy that you couldn't have reached if you didn't through go, first go through the sadness. So what is it? As follows. In order to comfort his heart in double measure, let him, in the wake of the above words of truth concerning his lowly spiritual stature, tell himself the following. So, now, he went through this bitterness, he went through this spiritual exercise of humbling his animal soul, of awakening the bitterness within his divine soul. Now he needs to comfort himself. The comfort is dual. Not only is his depression eliminated, but he will also attain a joy that he would never experience would it not, were it not for his earlier depression. And this is what he says to himself. He starts talking to himself. Lamar Lelibai, let him say to his heart, Indeed, without a doubt, I am far removed, utterly remote from God, and am despicable, contemptible, and so on. Okay, so the way to comfort yourself is not by saying, remember all these meditations we took to heart before? We were thinking about how our everyday consciousness is so distant from Hashem, how not all our words, thoughts, and actions are directed towards Him, how the things that we did, the sins of our youth, we had different meditations to have to remind us how far we are, how distant we are from Hashem. So the way to comfort ourselves now is not by saying, hey, remember everything we said until now? It's not so bad after all. No, we're actually going to say, Honest to goodness, it's all true. And in fact, by recognizing that it's all true, this is specifically the way we're going to come to joy. Pretty unique. Ach kolze hu ani levadi, hu haguf im nefesh hachiyunas shebai. But all this is true only of me. That is my body and animating soul within it. 
So you remember, this is one of the principles that was established right in the beginning of Tanya. We have not one soul, but two souls. So a lot of times people feel like a hypocrite because they think the same me that is ready to do a good thing is the same me that's ready to do a bad thing. No, you have two entire souls with entire personalities within you. There's the animal soul and there's the divine soul. The animal soul is the soul that animates our body and our ego-based everyday behavior. It's not necessarily bad in the way that we see bad as in mean, selfish, greedy, but it's comfort-seeking. It could even be nice, but there's something ego-based within the animal soul always. The animal soul is an ego-based creature. And then there's the divine soul that's totally transcendent, that is literally a part of Hashem himself. Whereas all of creation came about by the word of Hashem, the divine soul is the breath of Hashem. It is not part of creation. It is part of the creator himself. We are literally housing a part of the creator himself. We, within us, we house the infinite reality. The problem with us, as we explored in chapter 29, is that the very man himself, the person himself, is the animal soul. Not because that's his truest essence. It is not. Our truest essence is our divine soul. It is our divine soul that in turn animates the animal soul, which in turn animates our body. But the day-to-day soul, the consciousness that we relate to on an everyday basis is our animal soul. When we say, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm in a bad mood, get me food. It's not the divine soul that's saying that. That's the animal soul that's saying that. That's the consciousness that we relate to every single day. That's our operating force. To access our divine soul, we don't live on that transcendent level all the time. We wish we did. We're aiming for that. But what pervades our consciousness, unless we are a tzaddik, is our animal soul. So we have to struggle with that all the time. So when we're saying it's all true, but that's only true of me, we don't mean the truest me. We mean the everyday self that we identify with. Aval mikol yesh bekirbi chelek Hashem mamash. Yet, within me there is a veritable part of God, which is present even the most worthless of my fellows, so that even if I am no better than he, I still have this part of God within me, namely the divine soul and the spark of godliness itself, clothed within it, animating it. So it's all true. My everyday animal self is pretty loathsome, pretty despicable, disgusting, all those words that we called it. Hard, difficult words. That's true. But that is all me, the everyday conscious self within me. I have a divine spark. How do I know? Because even the lowliest Jew has a divine spark. And even if I'm not any better than him, that means I have it too. Every single Jewish person has this divine spark. And here's a good time to talk about this divine spark. This is something that is unique to the Jewish people and to anybody who came to the Jewish people. It's a very important idea to understand. When the Talmud talks about a convert, the Talmud says, Ger shenis gayer, a convert that converted. A convert that converted? How does that make sense? You should say a Gentile that converted. No, it's not a Gentile that converted. It's a convert that converted. Because this was a person that was born with a divine soul that had the potential to become manifest. Where did he get his divine soul from? Where did she get her divine soul from? We learn in mystical teachings that every time a couple is together, 
whether or not a soul comes down to be in a body, but a soul is created. Abraham and Sarah, all those years that they were together without child, they created many souls. And these souls come to be put into these holy people that were born among the Gentile nations. And that's why a convert is called the son and daughter of Abraham and Sarah, because they have a soul that was created in the union of Abraham and Sarah themselves. So every single Jewish person, whether born Jewish or became manifestly Jewish at a time when they went to the mikvah, has this divine soul. I want to tell you a very fascinating story from the Maharal. The Maharal was once helping somebody convert, was a very serious student, and he said to the Maharal at one point, it was getting closer for him to go to the mikvah, and he said, I understand that I have to study all these teachings that you taught me. I understand that I'm going to have to undergo a brit milah, a circumcision. But why do I have to go to the mikvah? And the Maharal said, that's a very good question. After you convert, a few weeks later, we're going to make a special su'udas mitzvah, a mitzvah party. And at that festive meal, I want you to come to me and ask me the question. So that's what happened. The man converted. He went to the mikvah. A few weeks later, they made a special festive meal. And the man doesn't come over to the maharal. So a while into the meal, the maharal calls him over and said, My son, you had a question. And he said, Yes, I don't have that question anymore. And that story is very symbolic to me as... At that time, when he went to the mikvah, he felt this manifestation of the divine soul within him. There was a definite change. It wasn't about just studies. It wasn't about circumcision only. It wasn't about something physical. There was something spiritual that became impregnated or manifest in him. And this is a very important idea because, um, you know, I, I have a good friend who only later on found out that she wasn't actually Jewish because her mother didn't undergo a perfect conversion. And it was too hard for her to go through the motion and she decided she's just not doing it. She doesn't want to go through the conversion process herself. She considers herself Jewish. And she said to me, Rachel, please stop making me crazy with all of this. I want you to know I'm better than a lot of other Jewish people. I keep Shabbat. I keep kosher. I keep the laws of family purity. She's married to a Jewish man. I am more Jewish than the Jews that don't keep these stuff. And I had to be very honest and say that's not true. If you didn't go through the motions of going through what Hashem said, because this is a uniquely divine gift that a human being cannot bring on himself. They have to follow the path that Hashem gave him. If you did not do what Hashem said, then even if you keep Shabbos and even if you keep kosher and even if you're the know the most Torah in the whole world, you are not Jewish. Well, a Jewish person who's born Jewish and doesn't keep anything and doesn't even care about it and maybe on a superficial level is, doesn't even identify with the Jewish people is more Jewish. So being Jewish is about having this divine soul. And every single Jewish person from the greatest to the greatest sinner has within them a divine soul. Ava, okay, rock. Wait, I want to just summarize what we got until now so that we don't lose focus of where we are. So we were talking about that a person should, sh should wake up the bariris within them whenever they feel like they need to. 
And the perfect time to do this is when they're anyway sad. The divine soul speaking through the animal soul. And this will transition into a great joy by a person comforting themselves and saying, yes, it's true. Everything we said until now is true. I am so far. I am so despicable. I am so loathsome. But that's only true of my everyday animal consciousness. Do you know what I have within me? I have within me a veritable part of Hashem himself. Okay, so what's not to be happy about? But there's a problem here. It sounds so good. I have within me this veritable part of Hashem. Think about it for a minute. A person who is really on the lowest rung, okay, definitely has within them a part of Hashem himself. How do you think that soul feels? Being housed within a criminal. How do you think that soul feels? So the altar was going to spell it out for us. Rak shehi bifchinas galas. It is only that when the body and animal soul are in such a lowly state, the divine soul is in exile within them. The divine soul's there, but it's held captive. Could you imagine this princess being held captive in a dungeon? Ha- having to f- being forced to animate somebody who acts against her? She's the one that gives the energy, and the energy for what? To act against her. This is such a sorry, such a pitiful situation. So let's, let's think about it for a minute, okay? Everything I said until now is true. My everyday self is so lowly, so contemptible, so distant from Hashem. And yet I have within me a part of Hashem himself. That means that it's an exile. So now, what's, what's the step to take? Im Kane Adiraba. If so, then on the contrary, Specifically because I am so distant. The greater is the pity and therefore is going to be greater the joy. The further I am from Hashem, the greater is the pity. The further I am removed from Hashem and the more despicable and contemptible the deeper in exile is my the deeper in exile is my divine soul and all the more is to be pity so the altar of narrative now is going to come in three stages the first stage is stop realize what's going on here there is a divine soul a veritable part of Hashem that's clothed within this despicable contemptible loathsome animal soul and body Could you imagine the great pity? Think about somebody who's speaking to their best friend. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, the best friend turns into a cockroach and starts crawling the garbage heaps to forage out some junk. Pity is not the word. Look at this divine soul that had to come down here and be housed within this contemptible animal soul that is ego-driven and so distant from Hashem. When you take that seriously, when you think about it, the pity is huge. Your heart will spill over with mercy. Could you imagine? That's step one. When you realize that, you realize that you have to do whatever you can to release this princess, this divine soul from captivity. Step two will be releasing the divine soul from captivity brings you a great joy. 
Realizing how dark the exile and you have the chance to release it, this brings you immense joy. And then step three will be, yes, it's true. The body remains the same. It's in its same sorry, pitiful state that it was. But don't confuse the joy of the soul with the sorrow of the body. So here we're examining the pity that is to be had on this incredible, magnificent part of Hashem himself. We thought about ourselves. We said we're so low and contemptible. And we said it's honest to goodness. It's all true. Well, if it's so true, could you imagine the pity that there is on the divine soul? Could you imagine how sorry it is? Could you imagine how sorry we have to be? How much we have to try to get her out of that space? Sorry, I'm just going to turn the page over here. V'lazeh asim kol megamasi v'chafti l'haitia ola'alaisa migalazeh. Therefore, I will make it my entire aim and desire to extricate it from this exile and return her to her father's house, meaning to restore it to its source, to its source and its original state as in her youth. Okay, so you feel so bad. So what are you going to do about it? This reminds me of a story of the great Hasid Reb Fagan from the previous generation. And he was once far bringing, they were in a Hasidic gathering with yeshiva students, and they were talking about, you know, how distant they were from Hashem. And a lot of the students in this vulnerable moment of camaraderie and sharing and being open with each other, a lot of them were crying. Now, this Hasidic gathering, you should know, was highly illegal. In Russia at that time, you weren't allowed to get together to study Torah, to speak about Judaism. So what did they do? They always had to be on watch from the KGB. So they would have somebody on the lookout and everybody else, if you get the code word, everybody else would scatter quickly so that they wouldn't be able to tell that there was some Hasidic gathering. So they're in the middle of crying about their sorry spiritual state. And all of a sudden somebody says, the KGB is here. It was a false alarm, but they thought they noticed a KGB guy coming towards their, their place. So everybody scattered quickly. Everybody took action. This went hiding here, under the table, out the window, wherever they went. And then they realized it was a false alarm and they reconvened. And the Reb Chacha looked at the students and said, look at the difference. When we talked about our sorry spiritual state, everybody cried. When we found that we were in danger, who cried? We all jumped to action. It's very nice to cry, but that isn't the point. The point is do something. Don't just cry, do something. So now we realize the pity of our divine soul. She's stuck in this low down, low class, substandard place. What are we gonna do about it? We need to release her. We need to do whatever we can to release her from her sorry state. And because the next section is complex and takes a lot of um, thought, I don't wanna push our minds today. So let's leave it for where we are, and I'm going to open up for questions and discussion. Everybody's on mute, so if you have something to share, please unmute yourself. Yes, Jill. I would love for you to take us through, like, how this development would happen. There's something that happens, and you get into this state of depression, can you kind of take us through how that would look? Okay, so let's you know look at saying? it. Yes, let's look at it now. And before 
we look at it deeply. I want to remind everybody what the Rebbe said about our generation. I feel like I have to repeat it each time we talk about the serious exercise of Merirus, that our generation is not cut out for deep sadness and for bitterness. Because of all the things that the Jewish people have already been through, as a collective whole, the Jewish people has already been crushed. And since we're crushed, we have become refined and elevated to a space where we can reach teshuva ila'a, teshuva out of joy. It doesn't have to be out of bitterness. But let's stop and look at the exercise as it's been prescribed in the Tanya, okay? So normally what we're doing in Tanya is the method of Chabad. What's Chabad? You use your mind your intellect, to access your emotions, right? The Torah says, Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish people before he leaves, say, this matter that I told you today is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. Oh, is it really? To keep the whole Torah not just on behavioral level, but actually in your mouth and in your heart? So the altar came to explain that to us because True Judaism is not just, oh, this is what I do. I, I keep Shabbat and then I, I have my other life. It's like compartmentalized. No. True Judaism is who I am. It's my identity. So how do we get to that space? By harnessing the powers of our soul. And that is by using our three intellectual faculties, Chachma, Bina, and Das, to then give birth to emotions in our heart. That's the normal way. It's a literal reaction just like when you walk near a big fire you get hot when you meditate on something you understand you first understand it because if you're not going to understand it how's it going to help right so you first understand what you're learning and then you sit with it sit with it means you make it personal when you make it personal emotions start responding you feel differently that's normal that's the way it should be but here we're looking at a specific spiritual sickness it's called Timtum halev, a stuffed up heart. So the person is actually studying and they understand what they're studying. They sit with it and no response. Their heart won't move. They're in a tough situation. What are they going to do? Their heart is numb. They can't serve Hashem with energy because they're not feeling. That's dangerous. You are perfect game for the Yetzer Hara if your heart is not feeling. You have to be able to respond emotionally. You're not feeling, you're not responding emotionally to the divine, the divine ideas that are coming to you. That's not natural. It's a sickness and you need to be healed. How are you going to heal it? So we took the advice of the Zohar. A beam that will not catch fire, a log that will not catch fire, needs to be splintered. And a a body in which the light of the soul will not shine, it has to be crushed too, not the body. The body's consciousness, the animal soul, has to be crushed. What does it mean has to be crushed? It has to be humbled. Why in the world aren't you feeling? The altar will tell you why you're not feeling. You're not feeling because your animal soul, with great chutzpah, is covering over the divine soul. You need to humble it. You're going to have to crush your animal soul so that your heart can start feeling again. That sounds good. Crush your animal soul. Except it's not that easy because it's personal. Our problem is our animal soul is us. We identify with it. If it was a, a being outside of ourselves, then we could look at the animal soul and say, oh, and we actually do. We, we rage at it. We say, you are loathsome. You are despicable. How dare you hide Hashem from me? But we were also making personal meditations. Look how distant I am for Hashem. The fact that I can desire something that he doesn't want, that's so distant. 
That means I'm so far. That means I'm so low. And I'm even further down the line than somebody who's sinful. I may not sin, but my problem is I know better and he doesn't know better. I'm even lower than him. We were using all these humbling meditations so that we can crush our animal soul. Crushing the animal soul makes a person feel sad. Think about it, right? Take it seriously. These meditations that we were speaking about in chapters 29 and 30. You think about it seriously, you get sad. That sadness, though, if it was done properly, it wasn't an ego-based sadness. Again, the ego-based sadness is a perfect person is close to Hashem and I'm not close to Hashem. Poor me. That's not about Hashem. That's about you. But Hashem-based sadness is Hashem is the most perfect. Hashem is the only reality. And how distant I am from Him, then true, I'm somewhere in the picture, but it's about Hashem. If it's a Hashem-based sadness... Once the person reaches that space after their meditations, and the altar was said, those meditations can take an hour or two or even longer, depending on how long it takes to actually create that mood of sadness. But once the sadness actually comes on, it's brief. It's only for a moment. That sadness lasts for a moment. It was in order to subdue the animal soul with its own kind. Remember, sadness is from the klipa. The animal soul is from the klipa. We were using the klipa itself to subdue the klipa. Once we subdue the klipa, it gives way to the holy feeling of mirirus, which is bitterness. Bitterness is not about me anymore. Bitterness is get me out of here. It's not ego-based. It's I'm leaving. I'm doing something different. I want to be closer to Hashem. When a person is in a state of bitterness, what they're doing is not only are they motivated to act, but they're actually tempering their own dark side because they expose the source of their dark side, which is hiding the divine. But really, why is it hiding the divine? For their own good. Like the parable from the Zohar about the harlot who's hired by the king to test his strength. She doesn't want him to fail. She wants him to prevail. And in this way, he is going to prove his strength and she's going to make the king happy. At its source, the Yetzir Hara wants us to overcome it, doesn't want us to succumb to it. The problem is down here, it already as it's manifest, does want it to, us to succumb. So we're exposing its source so that we sweeten the animal soul itself. Once we do that, now we can take a deep breath out and we start moving to joy. The joy is coming in increments, but the first method of joy is realizing everything I said until now is true. Everything I said is true. My animal soul really is. And that everyday consciousness that I live with really is so distant from Hashem. It's really despicable. It's really disgusting. It's really loathsome. All that is true. But that's only one part of the story. There's another part of the story. You know what I have within me? I have within me a part of Hashem himself. And that part of Hashem himself is an exile. And I need to release it from captivity. And guess what? When I release... This soul from captivity, you can't imagine the joy that I feel. Could you imagine taking the princess out of captivity? There's immense joy that comes from that. So, so that was already past the meditation. But the meditation was as long as it takes to feel sad, however long it takes. But once you get to the sad place, only brief. That brief sadness transitions into bitterness, which is making, making a plan. It's not about crying. Remember those guys who were sitting at the Hasidic gathering? Crying is not the answer. Do something. It was making a plan. I'm getting out of here. I'm doing something different. What am I doing different? I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the princess out of captivity. 
So does that make it clearer? Somewhat. It does. Um, I'm, I'm such a base person. Like, I'm just trying to figure it out for regular people. You know, how do we deal with that? But it, it, it clarifies somewhat. It's just, it's a big process. It's a big process. And uh, the Tana is for, for us regular it people. Is. The Tana is specifically written for the regular person. It's, it's for, you know, the everyday man. For each of us that are going to struggle and have a dark side for the rest of our lives. That's, that's one of the innovations of the Tanya, or it's yeah. not an inno- innovation, but rather a revelation of the Tanya, teaching us through, you know, mystic teachings as they apply to the human experience, that the problem was a lot of people had this struggle of hypocrisy, because they thought I have to be a tzaddik. And here I am, I'm doing everything right, and I still am struggling with a dark side. I, I, I must not be for real. I must not be legit. I'm probably a hypocrite. And the altar clarified that for us and said, no. Most of us are always going to have that voice inside of us that's going to tell us to do bad things all the time. And that's okay. That's actually part of the joy that we bring to Hashem every time we resist. At the end of the day, it's how we act in response to that voice. Right. So I think this is one of those things that it, it will seep in over time and just hearing it again and again because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's not really our natural way of living. Right, so it's a real switch. Right, and also, learning is a process of doing things, studying the same things again and again and again. It's like so funny. I remember listening to a right. shir. I don't remember who the who the rabbi in the story was, but uh, a guy came over to this big rush yeshiva, and said to him, "You know, forget it. I'm not cut out for learning Gemara. I review like I don't know three times each time, and I don't get it." He said, "Ha." Are you kidding? Three times and you think you're not cut out for learning tomorrow? After review, and I don't remember what the number is, like 50 or 60 times and you still don't get it, then you come back to me and tell me you have a problem. If you, if you want to be an honest learner, we have to learn the same things again and again. There's no such thing as you just read it once and you have it all down pat. No, there's, besides the fact right, right, Torah is right, infinite. Right. I mean, do you know the way the Jews studied the Torah, studied from Moshe Rabbeinu? Whenever Moshe taught a lesson, he told it to Aaron once, and then he told it to Aaron's sons once, he told it to the elders once, and then the way they repeated it, each and every person, just the first time they learned the lesson, was four times in a row. They heard the same lesson four times in a row as their first lesson. Serious learning requires repetition. Like you think, oh yeah, I'll I'll read through this, Tanya. I got it. (laughs) Are you kidding? You know how many times you read it again and again and again, and each time there's like a new something to be uncovered and something that never struck you before. There's no other way to learn. There's no such thing as just like, oh yeah, that was a great class. I got it. Thanks. You know. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you very much.